Please open your Bibles to Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the first book. So whether you're using our Pew Bibles, the Bible you got for Christmas, or that leather-bound copy handed down from Grandma, it's on page 1. Genesis 1-1, page 1, the very beginning of the Word of God. How history is recorded and described has sparked a raging debate in this country now. Many of us might be on one side of that issue, some on the other side, and a few among us may be looking for a path of compromise about this controversy, about how history should be presented. But in Genesis, we find history recorded by the direction of the Holy Spirit. We may debate how to interpret and apply this history, but we need not debate the record itself. For it is history found here, in the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. So, if you long for a presentation of history that is uncompromising and undebatable, please join me as we study Genesis. Hear now the word of Almighty God from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lord God, take us back to that beginning And let it be for us a new beginning of understanding, of knowing you more fully, fearing you more deeply, loving you more genuinely, and living for you more boldly. This we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This opening sentence of the Bible is second only to John 3.16 for its familiarity among biblical texts. In fact, many people who are complete atheists can quote this verse, or at least if you quoted it to them, they would know where it came from. In fact, many unchurched people, unbelieving people, if they have at least some familiarity with the literary teachings of this world, they know this verse. Almost everyone knows what Genesis 1-1 says. But I want you to know what it doesn't say. This morning I want you to appreciate the importance of what Genesis 1-1 does not say. Like a tweet without a hashtag or an Instagram without a selfie, Genesis 1-1 is striking because of what it leaves out. Now, we don't notice what is missing when we read Genesis because we're not steeped in the ancient literature of the Near East. And like those of you who don't know what I'm talking about with tweets and hashtags because you don't use that form of communication, you don't know what's missing when it's missing. But, and, and by the way, it's totally okay that you're not doing those things. But when we read Genesis, we need to recognize what's not there. We need to know what's missing. So, to help us understand this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about a document called Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish. It's not important that you necessarily remember that. It's an ancient text found in the the library of Ashurbanipal of Assyria, but it's actually a Babylonian creation account. It's the creation account of ancient Babylon. Basically, it is to the Babylonian religion their book of Genesis. And many scholars today will say, you know, Genesis is just a reworking of Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish came about 500 years before Genesis, and you know, it's sort of like how West Side Story, and I realize now some of you are too young to have ever seen West Side Story. It's worth watching, by the way. Just as West Side Story took Romeo and Juliet and applied it to 20th century America, 
So Genesis took Enuma Elish and applied it to the 15th century B.C. Israel. That is an unbelievably uh, uh, ignorant statement. It's like they didn't read either document. These two things are radically different. So listen for a moment. I'm going to read just a small portion of Enuma Elish so that we can understand what the literature of the world was like back then and maybe better understand what is missing from Genesis 1.1. So here it is, the opening lines of Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation account. When the heavens above did not exist and earth below had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter. Now that sounds a little Genesis-like, doesn't it? This idea that there was a before when they didn't exist. But here is the next line. And there was Demiurge Tiamat who gave birth to them all. Okay, so in the Babylonian account, uh, there needed to be a male and a female god in order to give birth to the heavens and the earth. So right off the bat, a little bit different than the book of Genesis. Continuing. They had mingled their waters together before Meadowland had coalesced or Rebed was to be found when not one of the gods had been formed. So now we've stepped back before the creation of the gods to a time when there was just this mingled waters. When not one of the gods had been formed or come into being. When no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. And I'm not going to keep reading, but you already get a sense of how different this is than the Genesis account. Let me summarize, though, because it's going to be important to us, the rest of the story, as it were. Okay, so Apsu and Tiamat, they form. The mingled waters separate and form this god and goddess. They, in turn, gave birth to other gods. Those junior gods, those children gods, are noisy gods. And they upset Apsu because he can't sleep at night. They're partying too much. So Apsu has a plan. He develops a plan with his vizier, Mamu. He develops a plan to kill off his children. Tiamat doesn't want any part of the killing off of her children. So she tells Marduk, one of her sons, the chief god of Babylonian religion, she tells him about his father's plan. He organizes his brothers and sisters, these so-called great gods, and they rise up against and kill their father, Apsu. And then there's a risk of chaos breaking out among the gods. All the gods are going to fight for power and kill one another. So Marduk takes charge of the situation. He gains control of the situation. He assigns to each of his sibling gods a sphere of power. You are the god of the oceans. You are the god of the air. You are the god of this. You are the goddess of that. You are the goddess of that. And he assigns each of them a place. But the gods don't like the tedium of the jobs they've been given. So Marduk takes from the blood of his slain father, Apsu, and creates mankind to be the slaves of the gods and to do the work the gods are too lazy to do. It's a seven-tablet document, so I've summarized it significantly, but there it is. That's a brief summary of the Babylonian creation story. Jazz great Miles Davis once said this about jazz, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Well, that is certainly true here. The biblical account of pre-creation history is completely lacking 
those elements which are so common to all other creation accounts. There are no uprisings, no battles, not even, an, uh, uh, not even others with whom to do battle. And while there is a pre-creation setting, there is no pre-God setting. Anyone who says that Genesis is a rehash of Enuma Elish is not listening to the notes not being played. So, let's look more closely at some of the important things that Genesis 1-1 doesn't say. Page 11 of the bulletin might be help if you wish to use that. So here we go. Genesis 1-1, the verse that says so little and why that matters. First, Genesis 1-1 says nothing about God's origin. It says nothing about God's origin. Genesis 1-1 does not tell us where God came from. And at no point does any future scripture ever do so. God's existence is simply assumed, taken for granted. We saw last week in Psalm 90 a psalm written by Moses, the same guy who wrote Genesis. He said this, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Revelation, John records the divine declaration, I am the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come. Unlike Marduk, who arises from Apsu and Tiamat, and they, in turn, from the mingled waters, the God of Genesis just is. That's it. Now, I'm sure some six-year-old Babylonian was pestering his parents and saying, where did Marduk come from? And they got annoyed, and one day somebody made up the story of Apsu and Tiamat. But Christian parents have dealt with that same question. And while the answer may not be particularly informative, it is far more satisfying. Mommy, who made God? Honey, nobody made God. God just is. I understand that doesn't provide a lot of understanding. But when you really think about what a supreme being ought to be like, he ought to be self-existent. If he relies on someone else for his existence, then he is not supreme. A supreme being has supreme existence. I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill here. This is important. Fast forward into the opening of the book of Exodus. You may recall the account. Moses is at the burning bush and he says to God, Give me your name. I need to know who you are. I have to be able to identify you to the people you want me to lead. And what does God say? My name is I Am. Yahweh, the name by which God is to be known throughout the generations. Yahweh is a play on the Hebrew phrase I Am. I exist. I am the one who is. I have being. God is self-existent. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1 says nothing about God's plural. It says nothing about any other beings. God existed in himself. He is self-existent. And God existed by himself. God is self-sufficient. He has no need of a consort like Tiamat in order to give rise to the heavens and the earth. Apsu was the begetter, but he needed Tiamat to be the birther. The God of Genesis... That is not the case. The God we read about here has no need of any 
others. By the way, that is still true today. God does not need our worship, our offerings, our songs, our praise. God does not need us to act, to pray, to serve, to witness. God does not need us to be Jesus to everyone we meet. Now, all of those things are good and right because God commands them. But they are not commanded because of some need God has. They are commanded because of the need we have to know what to do as those created in his image. God does not have needs, not in the usual way that we speak of them. He is perfect in and of himself. How did Paul say it to the Athenians, another culture that was accustomed to many gods, each of whom was lacking something? How does Paul say it to the Athenians? He says this in Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is self-sufficient. And Genesis 1-1 makes clear he was able all on his own as the only being in existence. Genesis 1-1 says nothing about God's origin. It says nothing about God's, about other gods existing. And it also says nothing about God needing to consult anyone. There is no consultation with God. We saw that in our Old, Te- we saw that in our Old Testament reading, and we see that here. Let me read another portion of the Enuma Elish, just a couple of lines further down in the text. Thereupon, Apsu, the begetter of the great gods, called Mamu, his vizier, and addressed him, Come, let us go to Tiamat. They went and sat facing Tiamat as they conferred about the gods, their sons. A conference, a confab, a consultation. The god of the Babylonians, the gods of the Babylonians, needed to sit down and talk things through. The god being introduced to us and described in Genesis 1-1 does not consult. He does not confer. He has no need of input or ideas. And even later, when creation will will be befouled by human sin, we don't see the the Trinity sitting down and brainstorming up the crucifixion as the best way to make lemonade out of the lemons Adam handed them. There is no scrambling. God does not call in a vizier. He does not sit down with his consort to talk things through. To the Ephesian church, God said it this way, or, or Paul said it this way about God. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is all wise, all alone. God is all wise, all alone. The fourth thing that we see glaring by its absence from Genesis 1-1, God is not surprised or caught off guard. You know what happened? I didn't read the, uh, the fullness of it, but after that confab that we just heard about from Apsu and from Mamu, the vizier, and from Tiamat, well, Tiamat doesn't like the plan. Apsu and Mamu decide they are going to kill off all the other gods, all the junior gods, all the children gods. Tiamat doesn't like that plan. And so she goes and tells her son, Marduk, so that he can step up against his dad. So here's a god, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk. And he has to be told what's going on. He doesn't know. And he will be caught off guard if he's not told. 
There is none of that in the Genesis account. Nothing even close to that in the Genesis account. And when we read of the fall in a few weeks, we'll be able to see there. It's not that word gets back up to God that Adam has sinned. It's that God comes down to the garden, knowing full well what happened in order to confront Adam with his sin. Our God does not learn because he already knows everything. The psalmist in 147.5 said it this way, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. He whose understanding is beyond measure. God is omniscient. What else do we see there in Genesis 1-1 lacking that we would have found if we were familiar with ancient texts, which uh, which would have been glaring by its omission? Well, there's nothing about opposition or resistance to God's creative work. Every creation account out there, all the ancient creation accounts except Genesis, is full of intrigue and suspense as the various powers confront each other and all the future hangs in the balance. This is why Enuma Elish and all the others take verses and verses and verses and verses, pages and pages and pages and pages, tablet after tablet after tablet after tablet, before they even get to the creation of the heavens and the earth and mankind. And in Genesis, we're going to get there in a matter of just a few lines, a few sentences, because there is no intrigue, there is no suspense, there is no drama behind the scenes, because there is no opposition to God. Though it came about a thousand years later, not quite that long. You may be more familiar with the Greek mythology of how the Titans uh, gave rise to the Olympian gods and how the Olympian gods rose up and killed and overthrew the Titans. We see this kind of drama and intrigue in every other creation account, but in Genesis there's none of that. What are we going to read next week? The simple statement, and God said, and it was so. No drama, no intrigue, no waiting to see if it'll happen, no waiting to see if he can win out, no waiting to see if he can outfight his opponents. He is unmatched. Our God has opponents, he has enemies, he has detractors, but he has no rivals. Jeremiah said it this way in chapter 10, verse 6, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Genesis 1.1 goes on to not say anything about the reason for God acting, the reason for his acting. So Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, is the hero of the Enuma Elish, and he goes on to become the creator of mankind. But it's interesting. If we were to keep reading why he created, and I already told you about this, the other gods are complaining about the gods, I'm sorry, about the jobs they've been assigned. And so Marduk creates mankind to be the slaves of the gods and do the work the gods were supposed to have done. Now, think about that for a moment. We use the word sovereign for earthly powers. Maybe a king in England back in the day was called the sovereign. But if he raised taxes too high or drafted too many young men for the army, he was at risk of being overthrown. Even today, among the despots of this world, what do we see? They constantly bestow largesse on those around them. Their advisors, their generals are given money and houses and much more in order to keep them from turning against them. In human affairs, there is no one who is truly 
sovereign who can just flat out do what he or she pleases. And in the Babylonian account, and the Egyptian account, and in the Greek account, and on and on and on, in every other account of creation, the gods face that same danger. Marduk has to keep those around him happy, or they'll do to him what they did to Apsu. Not so with the God of the Bible. Now, technically, this is related to his omnipotence that I just talked about in the previous one, yet I thought it wise, since we often make a distinction and talk about omnipotence and sovereignty separately, I I thought we should address them separately this morning. And we must recognize that the God presented in Genesis just does what he decides to do without any reason being given. And I didn't say there was no reason. I don't want to imply that God is capricious or arbitrary. But the reasons are his and his alone. They do not come from outside of him. They arise within him. Even later in Genesis, we're going to see God act for a reason. But the reason is going to be from within himself. He's going to keep his covenant because he is the faithful God, not because something outside of him threatened him. The God of Genesis is absolutely sovereign. How did the psalmist say it in Psalm 135, 6? Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. God is sovereign. The last thing I want us to look at this morning uh, uh, is that Genesis 1, 1 says nothing about God's awareness, his place, his location. There is, interestingly enough, in the other creation accounts, they always begin with a something or a someplace. We saw here, that before the gods were created, there were the waters that were mingled, and out of them arose. Always, this, always there is this place in these other accounts. But in Moses' recording of what happened here in Genesis, we simply find that God exists apart from any place of existence. Imagine that for a moment. Try to wrap your head around that for a second. Try to envision being with no place to be. You can't. And it's why the other creation accounts reduced their gods to be bound by time and space. It's why when Paul and Barnabas end up in Lystra in the book of Acts, they show up there, and what does the villagers say? It's Zeus and Hermes. They have come down to meet with us. Because they thought of their gods as being in a particular place. They were called the Olympian gods because they were on Mount Olympus. And they had to go out to be among people. Not so with the God of Genesis. He is not bound in that way by space and place. Paul says to the Colossians that all things hold together in him. God does not exist in places. They exist in him. Now be careful. If we were to take that and run with it without some correction from the rest of Scripture, we might end up with a Judeo-Christian pantheism. But if we look at the balance of the rest of the Bible, we recognize that that's not at all what it is teaching. It's not that all things and and that all places together are God, but that they have their existence in God. Thus, God does not reside in a place, but he transcends place. This is the essence. This is the foundation of the doctrine of omnipresence, that God is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. You know, Genesis makes no mention of a spatial context for God because he has no need of such a thing. He can and does exist outside of placeness. Jeremiah 23, 23 says it this way. 
Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Obviously, each of these is a rhetorical question, with the point being that God is and does transcend space. God is omnipresent. In stark contrast to the stories of the day, Genesis opens saying nothing about God's origin because he is self-existent. It says nothing about God's compatriots because he is self-sufficient. It says nothing about God's vizier or counselors because he is all-wise. There is no intrigue behind behind God's back because he is all-knowing. There is no opposition to God's work because he is all-powerful. There is no external reason motivating God to act because he is sovereign. And there is no mention of a place in space where God exists because he is omnipresent. Genesis 1.1 says so much by saying so little. One more note about Genesis 1.1 before we put it into the fuller context next week. Genesis 1.1 uses the word Elohim to refer to God. If you've been around the church much, you may have heard this word. Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. That's just it. When we read this, we tend to think. Or when you say God, even in the wider American culture, most people default to God of the Bible, the Christian God. That wasn't their context. They're coming out of Egypt, a polytheistic society. They're wandering through the Middle East, all of which, all those surrounding cultures were all polytheistic. And Moses doesn't name his God. He just uses a generic term. And so when they first heard this, there might have been some scratching, some scratching their heads asking, what God is it talking about? Is he referencing back to Ra from Egypt? Is this something about Marduk or the Babylonians? What is he talking about? Now, Moses isn't going to keep us in suspense for very long. He's going to use Elohim in chapter 1, generic God. But then immediately in chapter 2, he's going to use the personal name, Yahweh, our God. But even with the generic term Elohim, the suspense isn't as much as you might think. Because as they listened to this read, as they heard it again, as Moses read it again in another worship service, it would have begun to dawn on them that the God described here is not like any God we ever heard of in Egypt. The God described here is not like any God we've heard about from the surrounding communities and cultures. This God is different. This God is unlike any other God. And that's key. It is the key message for us even today. There are other attributes of God. Arguably, some of them are even more important than what I've listed. We've said nothing about God's holiness, nothing about his righteousness, nothing about his justice, nothing about his love. And all of these other attributes will eventually be teased out in the book of Genesis. But nevertheless, in the omissions of Genesis 1-1, Moses shouts volumes at us about who this God is. And what he has told us about God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, his omnipotence, etc., etc., etc. These details, uh, the details of all of these are not the point this morning. I didn't spend very long on any of them. Each one of them would be worthy of two, three, four sermons apiece. And if you don't know the details, I would encourage you to go study them, to learn them. But here's the real thing. Go back to being that six-year-old. Ask the question anew. Who made God?
and let the answer fall anew on you. No one made God. Just stand there, slack-jawed, in awe, struggling to comprehend, unable to get your brain around it. Consider not the specifics of the attributes of God that are here this morning, but rather be blown away by the God who possesses all of those attributes. That's the point. If we don't come to Genesis in awe of the God it portrays, we are not going to understand the book of Genesis. It is an, out, it is an astounding book. Who made God? No one. He just Genesis 1.1 is ultimately a verse which says very little, but by saying so little, it makes God so big. Let us be in awe of that God. Lord, let us see you anew through what is revealed about you in Genesis. And by contrast with what the world does when it creates gods, let us be amazed by what is not said about you. Let us be dumbfounded by the fact that you have no origin. You have no counselors or peers with whom to consult. You have no rivals that threaten you. You have no opposition to hinder you. You have no need to learn or be told anything because you already know it all. Let us stand here at the beginning of the beginnings and be in awe of who you are. We praise you for the book of Genesis. We praise you for the amazing things that it does not say about you. Let us worship you in light of them. Amen.